Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners... Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've just joined us, for the past three weeks we've been working our way through this letter Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's a letter written just a few decades after Jesus' time here on earth. It was written to Christians living in the Roman province of Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey. And it was written to remind them of the true gospel because they had been led astray by a false gospel. And where we're at in chapter 2, Paul is explaining to the Galatians how the message that he taught them is the truth. It's not something he made up, it's not something he received from other people, it's the genuine message of hope that Jesus himself revealed to him. And last week we saw how this message changed Paul's life and we learned how it can also change ours. But this week, we're continuing in chapter 2. Paul is still trying to help the Galatians see that the message that he preached to them is the truth. And to do that, he tells us about a fight that he had. And when we read it, it doesn't really sound like a big deal. He seems to have a problem with Peter choosing to have dinner with some people and not with other people. But when you go and take a closer look, when you stop and consider what's actually going on in this passage... It's a pretty big deal. 
This is a confrontation between two apostles, two giants of the early church. These are probably the two most influential Christians alive at the time. Peter is the leader of the worldwide church. Paul is the one who wrote half of our New Testament. And in Galatians 2, they stand opposed. This could have been a disaster. It could have led to a massive division in the early church. It could have resulted in these two most famous Christians refusing to kind of do business together, refusing to work together. But instead, instead of destroying the church, it actually strengthens the church. Instead of dividing the church, it unites it. And instead of being a dark and bitter moment in church history that we try and forget about, this moment becomes something that we learn from. It's something that Paul chooses to tell us about because here in this confrontation, we learn what it really means to say, I believe in Jesus. And so this morning, we've got three things that this confrontation teaches us about the gospel. These are the three points that you'll see on your outline. First, that it's possible to believe the true gospel while preaching a false gospel. Second, that the truth of the gospel is something worth fighting over. And third, that knowing the true gospel will completely change how you relate to God. That's the three things we're going to see this morning. But we begin in verse 11 with Paul telling us about a time when Peter, that's Kephas, came to visit Antioch. Now, earlier in chapter 2, Paul told us about how he went up to Jerusalem to meet with Peter. He wanted to kind of compare notes with him. He wanted to make sure that the gospel that he had been preaching for the past 14 years was indeed the same message that Peter and the other apostles were preaching. But now he's telling us about another time that he met with Peter. It's a different time a different place. And on this occasion, Paul says that when Peter came to Antioch, he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul says the apostle Peter is guilty. The leader of the worldwide church has got it wrong. And it's a big claim. And so in verse 12, he tells us why he made this claim. He says, for before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So here's the problem. Peter used to eat with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people. But then when some other Jews came to town, Peter stopped eating with Gentiles. He started avoiding them. He didn't want to be seen with them. Now, why is that? To understand what's going on here, we need to understand that in the Old Covenant, under the law of Moses, God gave his people a system of laws about purity. He gave them a whole system of how they could be clean and unclean. And it covered all sorts of things from what they ate, you know, so you couldn't eat pork, were clean and unclean animals. It covered what they wore. They weren't to wear clothing made with two different kinds of fabric. It included 
you know, how they were to respond with certain illnesses or certain illnesses that made them unclean. And it included, you know, things that they touched. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. But importantly for us, it also included that contact with non-Jewish people made them unclean, made God's people unclean. Now, this whole system was a way for God to teach His people that their sin meant that they couldn't be in relationship with Him. The problem was never pork. It, It wasn't eating certain foods that meant they couldn't have a relationship with God. No, no, it was their sin that meant they couldn't have a relationship with God. But God gave them purity laws to remind them of this fact. So that every day there was some reminder that their sin was a barrier between them and God and that they couldn't relate to God unless that sin was dealt with. The purity laws were a teaching mechanism. And so Peter avoiding eating with non-Jews is exactly what you would expect under the old covenant. But then Jesus came. And by dying on the cross, Jesus paves the way for all people to be made clean. Not just Jewish people, but Gentiles too. You see, the purity system only showed people the problem. It showed people that their sin meant they couldn't have a relationship with God. But when Jesus came, he came as the solution. He is the way by which people can be made really clean the way by which people can have a relationship with God. And so that means two things. It means, one, we we don't need to keep the Jewish purity laws anymore. You can eat bacon, hallelujah. But it means also that Jews who put their faith in Jesus no longer have to separate themselves from Gentiles. And that is exactly what Jesus revealed to Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he was in Joppa. If you know the story, Peter has a vision where three times he sees a sheet being lowered down from heaven and it's covered with all the unclean animals, all the things that a Jew can't eat. And three times God says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, I can't eat that stuff, that's unclean. And God says to him, don't you call unclean what I have made clean. Now, God is not just talking about the animals, he's talking about people. Because immediately after having this vision, a Gentile named Cornelius sends for Peter, and Peter goes and shares the gospel with him and his relatives, and importantly, Peter eats with them. Eating with a non-Jewish person was, was something that a Jew would never do. You couldn't have that kind of relationship, you couldn't have that fellowship. But here, in Acts chapter 10, Peter eats with a Gentile. He has fellowship with them because he realises God has accepted them. And he shouldn't consider someone unclean that God has made clean. So you see, Peter knows the gospel. He knows that the gospel is good news for all people, Jews and non-Jews. He knows that through Jesus, even these sinful Gentiles can be made clean. And he knows that he can love and accept anyone that God loves and accepts. 
And so he used to eat with Gentiles, but then he stopped. Why did he stop? He stopped because he was scared of some Jews who still thought that they needed to obey the Old Testament law to be right with God. He caved in to the peer pressure. He was more worried about what they thought than what God thought. And do you see what happens? But by separating himself from the Gentiles, Peter was effectively teaching a false gospel. You see, he was effectively saying, Jesus is not enough to make you Gentiles clean. You need to act Jewish. You need to work in order to be right with God. You see, he knew the true gospel. He believed that faith in Christ could make someone clean, but by his actions, he was teaching a false gospel. He was leading people into the lie that they needed to earn God's love. It's like Peter was in a burning building and he's standing in front of the only fire exit directing people away from it. And so Paul opposes him to his face. In verse 14, he says, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You believe the true gospel, that faith in Jesus is all that you need, but with your actions, you're telling a false gospel that you need to obey Jewish laws to earn your salvation. And Paul Paul gets quite offended by this. Peter is leading people astray. He's leading Jewish Christians to think that avoiding the Gentiles will make them acceptable to God. And he's leading Gentile Christians to think that they're not good enough, that they need to obey Old Testament laws in order for them to be right with Jesus. And so Paul exposes Peter's hypocrisy. Now, here's the thing. I think it's possible that we actually do something a little bit similar to what Peter does. I think it's possible that we here in this church can believe the gospel, believe the truth, and yet at the same time teach a false gospel by our actions. We believe the truth, but we actually deny the truth by what we do and what we say. Now, we don't always do this, but I think sometimes we can. We can do it within our own church, and there's a few ways we can do it. We can, we can sort of refuse to have fellowship with certain people who are, who are different to us. We can refuse to accept fully as brothers and sisters those who might vote differently or who might have a different opinion on, on certain issues. And we might, we might think in our heads, oh, they're not really a Christian. They wouldn't think like that if they were a Christian. We might do it with people who struggle with homosexuality. We might go, oh, do they... No, they're not, they're not really a Christian. What, do you see what we do? We, we create another barrier. We say, oh, you need to meet a certain level in order for God to approve of you. And you see, we can do it within our own church, but we can also do it between churches. We can explicitly or implicitly tell people that only churches that sing hymns or only churches that are emotionally reserved or only Presbyterian churches are true Christians. We can do it within our churches. We can do it between churches. But worst of all, I think we can even do it 
in our relationships with members of our community. And do you know one of the ways that I think we most often deny the gospel by our actions? It's when we fail to evangelise. You see, we know that Jesus is the only hope for our neighbours, don't we? We know that people are dead in their sins. They are facing a Christless eternity without putting their trust in Jesus. We know that the gospel is exactly what they need. And we know, or at least we say that we know, that the gospel is powerful to save them. Even the worst of sinners... And yet, how many of you have that friend or that family member that you've sort of just written off? Yeah, and you think, oh, they'd never believe the gospel. There's no way they would ever agree to read the Bible with them. Do you, do you have that person in your life? I'm sure many of you do. Someone you think is just too far gone. They're beyond hope. And doesn't thinking like that just confirm that deep down we actually believe that it's something in us that makes us acceptable to God? Doesn't that show that we actually think that in some way we were, we were better? That God chose us because of something that he saw in us? Of course, we'd, we'd never say it like that, would we? But when we divide people into categories of those we think would never believe the gospel and those that we think might possibly believe the gospel? What have we done but reduce a gospel of free grace to a contest of good works? Friends, if we truly believe that the gospel is a gospel of grace, if we truly believe that no one is deserving of God's love, but that he chose to love, if we truly believe that, that all that anyone needs to be right with God is to trust in Jesus, then our lives will reflect that. We'll share the gospel because we know that it's for everyone. It's for your friends who are good and moral and it's for your friends who are everything but good and moral. It's for your friends who, you know, are a little bit like you and it's for people who think completely different to you. It's for everyone. Everyone needs it. It's for educated and uneducated people. It's for rich and for poor. It's for everyone. And friends, if we truly believe that, we'll also open ourselves up to fully accept those that Jesus has fully accepted. There'll be no division in our church. There'll be no people that we look down our noses upon because we'll know that we're all on the same level playing field. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. It's possible to believe the true gospel while preaching a false gospel. That's our first point. The second point's a quicker one, but it's important, and it's this. The gospel is worth fighting over. Because you see what Paul does when he sees Peter denying the gospel with his actions? He, he confronts him. He opposes him to his face. He publicly argues against him. In verse 14, Paul called Peter out in front of everyone. That took some courage, didn't it? Peter's not some nobody. Peter's the rock on which Jesus promised to build the church. He's, he's like the chief of all apostles. But Paul confronts him. It was risky, 
He risked his relationship with Peter. He risked causing a big division in the church. He risked his own reputation. But do you know why he did it? Because the truth of the gospel matters. Jesus said that knowing the truth will set you free. And friends, without the truth, no one is free. And so if we care about people, we will care about the gospel. And if we care about the gospel, we will fight to preserve its truth. Now, that might make you a little bit uncomfortable because it's true that in the past, a lot of damage has been done by fights within the church. But there is a clear difference here, and and the difference is, one, in what motivates Paul, and two, the the method that he takes. You see, his motivation is not self-interest, it's not him trying to get power, his motivation is the truth of the gospel, and we see that really clearly. But we also see it in the method. Paul doesn't accuse Peter, he doesn't like kind of slander Peter, he doesn't start whispering behind Peter's back. He doesn't kind of claim the moral high ground. He doesn't look down his nose at Peter. Do you know what he does? He tells him the gospel. Because the gospel matters. Now, now we live in a church culture that I don't think we're very good at confrontation. I'm not very good at confrontation. Because we, we live in a kind of church culture that values being polite. We're often too scared of what people will think. We want people to think well of us. We don't want to cause a stir. And so when we see something in church that needs to be confronted, what do we do? Do we pretend we didn't see it? Do we whisper to everyone except the person who actually needs confronting? Or do we just walk away? You see, that's what I'm like. I'm a conflict avoider. If I were in Paul's position, you know what I would have done? I would have said, oh, who am I to correct Peter? Who am I to tell the Apostle Peter what to do? I'll keep my mouth shut. Or I might have said, oh, I don't like what Peter's doing, but it's really none of my business. It's it's between him and God. Or I might say, the loving thing to do is just to ignore Peter's mistakes. God will forgive him. Do you see what would have happened if, if I was Paul? What would have happened is the leader of the worldwide church would have continued to make people think that they could be right with God by being good. And so more people would have taken a false gospel with them straight into hell. Friends, Paul shows us that the gospel is worth fighting for. It's worth losing friends over. It's worth upsetting people for. It's worth having people think you're harsh or mean or narrow-minded because the gospel is the only hope that people have. Paul shows us that the gospel is worth fighting for. He also shows us how to fight because when Peter needs confrontation, how does Paul confront him? With the gospel. He teaches him the gospel. And this leads us to our third point, that the gospel completely changes how we relate to God. Because in verse 15, Paul begins to correct Paul, uh, Peter's false living. You see, he begins to teach the leader of the worldwide church about the gospel, which just goes to show that we, we all need to keep hearing this message. If, if Peter 
the apostle needs to hear the gospel. We need to keep hearing the gospel. And so Paul reminds Peter that keeping the Old Testament law was never enough to make anyone right with God. He says in verse 15, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, at the heart of this confrontation is what Paul calls justification. It's a legal term. It comes from the courtroom. It means to be declared innocent. And to be justified before God means that God looks on you and declares you not guilty. If you like the just as if I'd never sinned, justified. Here Paul says that a person is not justified by the works of the law and in case Peter misunderstood Paul says it three times in verse 16 that no one will be justified by doing good things for God no one will be declared righteous right with God the the only way to be justified is through faith in Jesus to believe that Jesus took our guilty verdict and our punishment upon himself That Jesus stood before the judge and said, I will pay the price for them. And friends, you need to know the difference that that makes. Because most people view God as the sort of the angry boss looking over your shoulder, waiting for you to slip up, waiting for you to make a mistake so he can punish you. And even lots of Christians live out their lives in fear of not being good enough for God. Worrying, have have I done enough? Do I believe enough? Will he accept me? And friends, what Paul tells Peter and what he teaches us here is that we don't need to live like that anymore. The life of trying to be good enough for God is dead. It was crucified with Jesus at the cross. And now, now you can live with, with certainty. When God looks upon you, he doesn't, you know, crinkle up his nose and say, hmm. He doesn't have to try and fudge the numbers to, you know, try and get you across the line. Oh, you know, I guess I can, I guess I can ignore that. And yeah, they're almost good enough. No, no, no. He looks at you and he says, he sees Christ living in you. He looks on you and says, perfect. Not because of anything that you did. You are far from perfect. I am far from perfect. But God looks at you and he says exactly what he says to his own son. He says, this is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. With them I am well pleased. Friends, when you put your trust in Jesus, when when you believe the gospel, You believe that Jesus has paid it all. There is nothing that you can contribute. Anything that you try to contribute only goes to say that Jesus' work wasn't enough. No, when you you trust in Jesus, you're saying, He did it all. There was nothing I could have done. It was all Him. And friends, when you do that, you can rest. You don't need to worry about whether He thinks good of you. You don't need to worry about whether you're good enough. 
You put your trust in Jesus and he looks on him. He looks on you and he sees his work as your work. His righteousness is counted as your righteousness. And friends, you can be right with him forever. Safe forever. Friends, when you know the gospel, it completely changes how you relate to God. You don't, you don't view him as a threat, as a danger, as someone that you need to constantly try and appease. No, you see God as the one who loves you because Jesus died in your place so that you could be justified, that you can be right with God forever. And friends, you can rejoice in that. And so let's thank God for that now. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this precious news that by your grace, by your sheer generosity and love, you chose to welcome us as your children. Not because of anything that we could do, but because of what Jesus did for us. Lord, help us to know this gospel. We pray that we would know it in a way that we not only declare it with our mouths and believe it in our hearts, but that we show it by our actions. May our lives not contradict your gospel or preach a different gospel, but may our lives and our attitudes, particularly towards other Christians, show that we are all sinners in need of your grace. We pray that, we would, that you would help us to treasure the gospel and to protect its truth, Give us the courage to confront false teaching when we see it. But Lord, keep us from doing this in a, in a harsh or unloving way. We do this because of love. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us strive to preserve the truth of the gospel in our own lives, in the life of our church, and out in the world. And Father, we pray... We ask and we thank you that we can relate to you now as a good and gracious God, that we know that you look on Christ and declare us righteous, that we don't need to worry, we don't need to strive to please you, that we are safe forever because of Christ's work. Help us to rest in that, we pray, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name. Amen.